Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Elon Medhavji and I'll be your host. Humanitarian border and diplomacy. These are three words you've probably heard before, but I don't think you've ever heard them before in that order. And that's because this is a new and evolving concept in diplomacy. So this means it isn't the type of diplomacy that evokes images of embassies and flag lapel pins, but it's speaking of a specific context where the tool and skills of diplomacy can be very useful and even save lives. I want you to think back to those images that you see in the news, where you see migrants and refugees crammed into a boat trying to cross a body of water, or streams of people fleeing conflict. Usually we know where they're coming from, and sometimes we even know where they're going, but what we often don't know is what happens when they actually get there. See, the problem is, even if you asked one of these displaced victims what was awaiting them yonder, unless they have an international law degree, they too might not actually be so sure. And this is exactly why humanitarian border diplomacy exists. Unfortunately, this is a world of perpetual instability, full of people seeking the exact opposite for themselves and their communities. But what happens when countries mediate this dynamic? Because sometimes they, you know, champion human rights, but then at the same time, they don't provide any legal pathways for migrants to apply for asylum. And what about people fleeing humanitarian crisis. Are they always protected? What happens when they reach an international border in need of help? Well, let's find out. You know, and, and, and looking at this way of diplomacy as an art of persuasion, you know, and that's what I found very interesting in what they were doing. That's the voice of Christina Churuka Muguruza, associate professor and senior researcher at the Human Rights Institute of the University of Duesto in Spain, who actually authored a piece for the Hague Journal of Diplomacy entitled Everyday Migrant Accompaniment, Humanitarian Border Diplomacy, just earlier this year. And it's this piece that's, of course, inspired this episode, but it was also fundamental in the early exploration of this topic as we understand it today. In fact, many of her ideas were actually gathered in the field in the Spanish enclave of Melilla alongside our second guest, Diego Fernandez Maldonado, and his organization Jesuit Migrant Service, who work on the border to assist and accompany migrants and refugees. So today, with the academic and field experience of our guests, let's first understand what is actually happening at these borders and how diplomacy plays a role there. Here's Diego. I, I now am the, the head of the legal department of the Jeff, Jesuit Migrant Service, but I was previously working on a day-to-day -day basis in our border project, which is located in Melilla. Melilla is a, a Spanish autonomous city surrounded uh, by Moroccan soil. It is on the other side of the Mediterranean. It is only 12 square kilometers. Um, and I always say that Melilla, as well as Ceuta, which is the other Spanish city in northern Morocco, are actually opportunities. I mean, we, we, we have the um, opportunity to have a land border between African uh, continent and European soil so that people that are seeking protection do not have to cross an ocean. So actually Melilla is an opportunity. Unfortunately, it is not treated as so. Uh, we have a very 
big fence surrounding both Spanish cities and an easy access to the city is actually very difficult and in the recent years, almost impossible. Uh, but before that, even when borders were opened and depending on your nationality and the color of your skin, you were only able to enter the cities either by climbing the fence or either by um, going by a water route, a sea route uh, on the boat. So basically you had to risk your life in order to ask for protection because according to the Spanish law, you have to be in Spanish soil in order to apply for asylum. So it is a situation which um, even though Melilla has um, an asylum office right at the border, it is very difficult to enter and apply for asylum. So that is like the very initial uh, claim that we always say, you have to risk your life in order to apply for asylum. Well, okay, so it came across to me as very securitized, like a very securitized area that these life and death situations, paradoxically, the solution to them is also a life and death situation. Um, and I know, uh, Christina, the research you've done there perhaps has exposed you to that. I, I'm, I'm curious from, from your perspective, obviously, you know, having authored the, the piece for the journal, a lot of, in your work, a lot of what you wrote about, I think, went deeper and more personal than perhaps your usual paper in a diplomacy academic journal. And I'm curious about that experience. And you talk about everyday diplomacy, for example. Um, what is that everyday experience like for someone trying to seek asylum or someone who has applied for it? And why does that require some sort of quasi-diplomatic assistance that we're now here to talk about? Well, I think, as, as you mentioned, I mean, diplomacy emerges when there is a need for it. And migrants and asylum seekers, and I would say forced migrants at borders, see that the voices are not heard and they need uh, these NGOs like the Jesuit Migrant Service who are accompanying uh, migrants, give them their voice, advance their rights. Um, uh, they speak with authorities, claim, um, claim the rights for these people. Um, and the issue is what I wanted to mention is to give a bit of a context what, uh, what Diego was just mentioning. I think we need to understand um, that we are witnessing a process of migration, con uh, migration control uh, that, is, that is part of a global governance of migration that is not happening just in our borders of Europe but all over, we see that in, in America, we see that even in Africa, in Asia, where um, forced migrants and asylum seekers um, are seen as, as a security problem uh, because we have the, the highest level of forced migration since the end of the world war. So, and framing this displacement, this forced displacement as a crisis, is triggering security measures. So uh, this is why crossing borders is becoming an issue of, of uh, life and death. We are seeing people detained at borders. Uh, we see more fences, hotspots in Italy and Greece. We see pushbacks. Uh, the COVID has been used as, as an excuse to directly uh, reject people at borders. 
Um, we see that in the United States, but we saw that also uh, in, in, in our borders. So we are trying to avoid people cross coming to, to our, our states, but we are also seeing the criminalization of those who are accompanying migrants, yeah? As, as, as Diego mentioned, I mean, people have a right to seek asylum, but we, it's impossible for them in many cases to reach our borders. And when they are in, they don't have the possibility, the conditions to seek asylum are not there. So, I mean, perhaps even just a, to ask a very harsh question, I mean, uh, to what degree is that by design, that you know that policy framework, the 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 way that uh, applying for asylum is a, is a bit of a, a black box. Like as soon as you're there, okay, you can do it. But how you get there is another story. To what degree is that by design to to deter people from doing so? I mean, uh, us and all NGOs that work with migrants uh, always claimed that there needs to be more legal pathways in order to apply for asylum. Um, we must remember that when people arrive to our borders, to our coasts, that's just like the end of the journey. Many have gone through a lot of countries and a lot of really bad experiences in order to arrive. Many do, do not even arrive, um, either renounce or, or even die in the, in the transit, let's say. And a lot of it has to do with European policies. Uh, Definitely. First, not providing the opportunities for legal migration, but also um, externalizing the fortress Europe, not only in, in, in strictly European borders, but utilizing and, and providing incentives to third countries to do, let's say, that um, blockage without having a human rights uh, focus uh, and without. Uh, providing the opportunities for those seeking not only asylum, but uh, basic dignity as, as, as people and human rights in those transit countries. Um, what happens in our borders is also um, what we're seeing is that future Europe, I mean, just, just to take into account what the European Commission has um, proposed in their recent pact on migration, they are trying to focus all the processes at the border. So not only trying to stop people from coming, but also doing a screening, a very strict screening at the border. So um, it will be very difficult to arrive. So it's been, but now it gets getting very difficult. But not only that, but when you arrive, you are obliged, mandated to give, let's say your your, your story of, of persecution, your asylum story, at a moment in your life in which many people um, are not able or are not emotionally stable enough or do not understand uh, what's going on, what the procedures are, a moment in which the legal guarantees in order to um, assess a story of, of persecution are not necessary there. And that's part of our role, to provide uh, trust to people that arrive in a very hostile and, different and difficult moment, but also to advocate in their names, the competent authorities, 
to, um, even though they're legally mandated to, to work on the border, be very exquisite with the guarantees and provide the atmosphere so that people can tell their, their asylum story. That is very, very, very difficult. We, we have an open office in, in the border in which ev everybody's welcome. Um, it's provided to be a safe space in a very hostile city. Um, sometimes we do not have a legal solution for the case. In many cases we do, but sometimes we just accompany, we just listen and we just provide uh, a very safe atmosphere for a while at least. Um, with that mm, accompaniment, we try to provide a, very, a specific answer, but also we try to identify on a continuous basis because these things in borders, borders change continuously and border problems and violations continue to, to, to adapt. And the administration adapts to different situations. Um, we identify these violations with their stories, with, with, with what they tell us, with what they entrust us. And uh, when, after we, we do that initial phase, listening to a lot of people, we represent some of them. Some of them, we, we appear as their lawyers, we are, we are a legal project. And with this very specific few representations, we try to advocate for the general interests of that. It could be a very big group, asylum seekers as a whole, it could be a more specific group, um, asylum seekers of a very specific nationality, or LGBTI asylum seekers, or asylum seekers that have just arrived through the fence. So it could be different kinds of groups, but when we interact with the administration in the name of one or two people as lawyers, we actually do it um, trying to provide legal guarantees for the whole group that's intervened in a very analogous way, let's say. And that has to do with, with how we listen and, and let's say, get the trust of the people that we accompany. But also, we need to also get the trust of the people we dialogue and interact with that are working in the name of the administration. Um, and that goes on a day-to-day -day basis uh, because sometimes um, the legal guarantees in a formal point of view are complied with. I mean, when you see a, um, a file of, of, of an asylum claim, you see, you see the papers, let's say, you see that all the guarantees are, are provided. He, he or she has a, a translator, a lawyer, and the interview has, done, has been done correctly. But when you're there in the day-to-day -day basis, you see that the, the guarantees that need to be there for the people to actually tell his or her story have not been provided. And that has an impact on the future recognition rate because there are some stories in some countries that in which uh, it is fairly easy to assess their asylum um, needs, especially those that come from war-torn countries, let's say. But when you need to assess the specific story, the specific necessities, if an interview is not done well in a border context, the recognition rate of asylum seekers um, will, will definitely be lower. And that happens in Spain. Our, our asylum office has a low recognition rate, and that has to do in part due to the fact that the legal guarantees at the border procedure are not being met. Um, I, I will say, um, uh, when I was listening to Diego, um, uh, I mean, I think that, that, that what he's been describing is this idea of more an everyday diplomacy, 
Yeah? This work uh, of diplomacy as a social practice, this idea of um, trying, so understanding diplomacy as, as something that emerges, like when you have someone like Diego, who is representing a person or a group, yeah? and negotiating for the rights in front of authorities. Um, I think this is really the diplomatic practice that emerges yeah, at border. And how does it relate, as you are saying, with diplomacy with a big D, with capital D, no? So more with the state and regional. Um, I think it does in the way that what they are doing on daily basis has an impact in the longer term, yeah? And that is influencing the way, uh, hopefully, you know, the way the state uh, will react. So as we talked more about life at the border and what humanitarian diplomats actually do there, I wanted to know more about these networks that they operate in, because in the same way that countries as we know have bilateral relationships, right? Those are those one-on-one -on -one connections they have with other countries or even organizations. Diplomacy is also really important when we work in multilateral networks. And what was puzzling me about this was that when people like Diego operate in these larger networks, maybe first building trust with migrants, and then also in parallel, they're working with these long-standing relationships that they've built with state authorities and maybe other NGOs. This is all happening under extreme time pressure and strict institutional policies and deadlines. And we're not even talking about the turbulent environment this is happening in, and definitely the impact that's having on the asylum seekers they're working with. So let's jump back in to see what Diego has to say about this paradox. Okay. Um it's a very good question, actually, Ilan. Um, and it's a very frustrating um, paradox, let's say. Um, as I was saying previously, the administration, of course, is in charge and is able to adapt much quicker than the pace that we are able to provide answers to that new situation or to, to those new um, specific violations of, of or way of working. And it's actually pretty frustrating because sometimes when we are um, working for or advocating for the specific rights of a person, we might be also thinking about the next person that's going to come in that very specific situation because sometimes it's too late to, to, to be able to do something for the person we are currently a company. I don't know if I explained myself. Um, since since we do not arrive in time to to, to assess that, that case in the best way, let's say, um, we at least um, inform the administration that this has done not be done correctly and we expect, expect it to be done correctly for the next person that arrives. Um, and of course, we, we are working in a very tense and, and, and various tense situations sometimes because the person is in a very um, imminent risk of being deported um, and sometimes because the, the the time frames that the law provides for the person to for example tell his or her asylum claim uh, has elapsed and we have not arrived in time 
Um, it is actually yeah, very difficult. Um, but one thing I want to mention, two actually. First one that um, Christian has already mentioned it. It is very important to work in a network. It is not, it is not only us as a Jesuit service. Uh, we need an adequate uh, network of NGOs and not only NGOs, specific people. Um, and of course UNHCR that is present at the borders. Um, in order to be able to arrive at different moments and with different uh, focuses to, to, to provide a, a complete assessment of the situations. And then also that borders are actually very sm small atmosphere. Like uh, when we, in, we, we have dialogues with the administrations, we're not speaking about very big administrations or we're normally speaking with the same number of people all the time. We know each other. We see each other in the streets, not only in the office, in the street, in a restaurant. Um, I mean, we know each other. And that can be very good because it provides a, like a familiar environment. But at the same time, we have to be able to transmit, one, that we are not there to be having in favors or of, of any kind. We don't want favors. We want the, the law to be abided with. And also that we are there to be um, a respected um, actor, let's say, um, in which we will always provide answers uh, for us to work together so that human rights are respected for people that, that are on the move. And that is something that we have to work on a day-to-day -day basis. And then when a crisis comes, we do a, like a crisis situation and we work in a different way, but it has to be done on a very day-to-day -day basis. Like something that has not been mentioned yet, you know, is like um, what I witness uh, going to Melilla and seeing the work they do is that it's not that they only deal with immigration authorities, um, you know, and, and, and looking at this way of diplomacy as an art of persuasion, you know, and that's what I found very interesting in what they were doing, yeah. But it's also that they work in partnership and in network with other organizations, yeah. Um, and, and this part, which is of course a, a part of the of advocacy, is also a, an important part of humanitarian diplomacy at borders. And this has an impact, I will say, in state uh, authorities and, and has an impact. Yeah, it's brought outside the border to a highest level. And I will say maybe that's where we can see this relation. So this last point that Christina mentioned where dialogue with larger networks and states actually brings this topic away from the border, so to speak, it kind of spurred a whole new discussion that honestly could be a, an episode of its own. And that's because the war in Ukraine has completely changed the way that we, and especially Europeans, will ever think about a refugee crisis. Now, this was actually a topic that we discussed off air a number of times. But as we were having our recorded session, it perhaps predictably came back on the table. And what I want to do right now is just let that segment of the tape play naturally. Because some of the themes we got into were very important for understanding border diplomacy at higher diplomatic levels. And of course, you know, not to mention some of the consequences that the current conflict will have on wider migration policy and diplomacy. What I want to now ask you, Christina, I know in the past, um, 
you've spoken actually quite passionately uh, about what you refer to as a double standard um, that we're currently seeing. And as we know right now, uh, Europe, the European Union, um, and the world as a whole is, is facing um, a brand new and perhaps very unexpected, unprecedented crisis. Uh, we've seen too many tragedies in the, the last couple of months that have occurred as a result of the, um, the crisis in Ukraine. And one of those is yet again, a refugee crisis hitting the borders of the European Union. To give listeners, I'm sure they've heard all kinds of, of horrifying numbers and figures, but just to give a, um, a very simple figure, in the first few weeks, there were one of the fastest um, crises to reach, reach 4 million refugees in a matter of weeks. This is unprecedented. Uh, you hear that word a lot. You, I think you've, you know, we've, the last checkpoint we had was the, the Syrian refugee crisis, and perhaps before that in Europe, also directly in Europe, the, the Balkan Wars in the 90s. And yet, amongst all that is being written and said about it, understandably, there are only a few, and I, I, I understand why, you know, considering the gravity of the situation, perhaps now is not the time to fully reflect while we're still involved in this crisis, but there are a few, I would call them opinion pieces, op-eds, uh, et cetera, that are asking a very particular question. And that question is, if the EU is responding like this to the Ukraine crisis, specifically Ukrainian refugees, first of all, why did they not respond like this before? And secondly, will they continue to respond like this in the future? Now I can see Christina has a few things to say already. So I would just pass it immediately right to her because I, I want to understand that perhaps it's a double standard. I want to understand that a little better. Uh, maybe, maybe start with something different in a way, but, but answering your question is that the European Union has shown that we can, we can respond differently to, migra to, to migrants and asylum seekers. So that, that this is possible, yeah? And we also, uh, so there is clearly double standards. Um, the temporary protection directive, which is what it has been provided to, to, to Ukrainians fleeing uh, the war, um, was, uh, was adopted in the end of the 90s for after the Kosovo uh, crisis. Never, uh, it never triggered a decision. And it has taken two weeks for the European Council and the Commission to agree. So it means it's an issue of political will. Um, and at the same time, we are having, I think there are 600,000 uh, asylum applications in process. We still have people in the hotspots in Greece. We had, um, I can't remember the, on the number, 5,000 no? or 3,000 people that were jumping the fence uh, two weeks before. And people from Mali, from South Sudan, uh, from Burkina Faso. So people that have a right to be given asylum, yeah? And the first idea of the Spanish authorities was to pull them back, yeah? So uh, I think the issue is, of course, there are double standards, and of course, there is a selective response by the European Union. And something that is interesting in, in terms of, of the diploma of humanitarian diplomacy, Ukrainians didn't need humanitarian diplomacy, didn't need anyone to speak on their behalf, like we are seeing at borders. 
they were granted asylum. They don't have to go through the asylum process. <clears throat> Immediately, they have access to work, to education, to any facility. So I will say, unfortunately, it, is, it shows that um, we consider them Europeans, we consider them white. They, they, we think, I guess this is the reason they are, people feel more attached, yeah, uh, to people coming from Ukraine, of course. I mean, and this is not to, I mean, of course they are going through, through a horrible situation and we never thought we were going to see an, a war of aggression in Europe. And this has triggered this solidarity, however, Asylum should be given to everyone without any discrimination. And we, we, see real, we have seen here a, a clear discriminatory policy. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I couldn't say it better myself. And there's, there's two things that pop right into my mind. I know that when this temporary protection directive was enacted, um, I believe it was Ursula von der Leyen came out and spoke about, I mean, regally spoke about human rights and the responsibility, quote unquote, we have um, as a society to open our arms to our brothers and sisters who need help. And what we're talking about, uh, what a few people are starting to now write and consider is, you know, okay, like this is fantastic in a sense of, uh, this is a, a great feat of European Union urgency, something we don't see too often, a great feat of European Union solidarity, something we don't see too often. Um, in a time when it was needed. And the way that Ukrainians are being treating, treated, that should be the standard. That's what, it, what a lot of people are saying. Um, that's what I hear you saying. That's, I would also agree. And a, se a second thing that came to mind is, um, Christina, when you were mentioning all the benefits that Ukrainian refugees are now being afforded, uh, in a way, maybe I, I tricked Diego by talking about his ideal situation it sounds like a lot of those things are now being addressed. Have, skipping the asylum process, immediately providing refuge for someone, giving them access to education, giving them access to healthcare, psychological support, shelter. And then we'll deal with the asylum process later after one is in a way rehabilitated. That alone directly calls back to what Diego referred to as a respectful human rights first approach to providing refuge for refugees, and providing asylum for asylum seekers. Uh, even from the European Union perspective, I mean, um, I'm sure you all remember back when the Syrian refugee crisis was underway, what were the excuses? Oh, well, the asylum system is going to be overloaded. Oh, well, you know, how do we deal with this quota system? And, you know, all these things just like that existed in a directive and it took solidarity, I guess, as you called it, to very immediately find the solution to all these problems. So they were there the whole time. And in the past, the EU did not reach for them. And this time they did. So uh, Diego, perhaps I'd like to ask you a sensitive question, a very short question, but a very important one. Um, why? Why is this happening now? And um, yeah, perhaps just there. Why? Why is, why? That, that's what I'd like to know. I mean, I'm, I agree with you both. It's course, um, a decision that is to be celebrated. Um, and it's a good practice that we hope, because you, you mentioned in your previous question, will this continue to be applied in the future? I am not as, as optimistic, but we at least we have the precedent that the 
that the temporary protection directive has been um, executed. We, I mean, I like to strengthen first what Christina mentioned. This they did not create a legal framework for this situation. It already existed for more than two decades, and it had been never applied. And not because we did not have previous um, situations of specific nationalities fleeing, um, in which this this um, temporary directive could have been applied. Um, so we have to celebrate it. We have to congratulate um, the European Union and, and its um, and a lot of its um, member countries, not only for for doing so, but also for having the the public statements that we hope will be done for any kind of crisis and any kind of and not only general crisis, but in regards to migration. I mean, the public discourse is very important. Um, for our day-to-day -day work in the borders. Um, but the public discourse is not enough. As Christina mentioned, on the same weeks in which European um, leaders and Spanish leaders were saying all the time, we, we are a very uh, welcoming community to, to those fleeing um, Ukraine. But in general, we're a welcome, welcoming States, a welcoming country, uh, continent. Um, I had to um, travel to Melilla to assist our my colleagues of the border uh, project because 850 um, people had entered Melilla through the border fence. Uh, many from from war torn countries, which have a very high recognition rate by the Spanish asylum office, and the Spanish police was doing all they could to um, do a very fast asylum procedure, disregarding the, the, the basic formalities, which uh, with an aim of returning them to their countries. That at the end did not work. They all um, have, have their asylum claim not, not accepted. I mean, they have not been granted protection, but they, they, they have in, initially been accepted. But that shows you that there definitely is a double standard. And it is not based on the numbers. As you have mentioned, Dylan, the number of Ukrainians entering Europe, the European Union, excuse me, is unprecedented. And the numbers of migrants and asylum seekers exposed that enter the Spanish southern border is ridiculous in, when you compare it to the Ukrainian numbers. So, um, it does, definitely has to do with, with a public discourse. It also has to do with the fact, Elin, that we are not aware as Europeans that, for example, sub-Saharan country, um, country nationals has have asylum, asylum claims, that are legitimate asylum claims. We are not aware of conflicts going on in Burkina Faso, in Mali, or specific persecution situations in, in, in many countries, in sub-Saharan countries. Uh, our public image, or the general images, those of, of poverty and, and economic migrants, basically, which from our point of view also have a legitimate claim of migrating. But if we only want to think about asylum, asylum seekers, we, we have like a very fixed um, number of nationalities in which Africans do not apply. And that has an influence in how both leaders, but also um, people working at the borders and the general public think about those arriving through our southern border.
Now, I don't believe that I've ever assigned homework to you, our dear listener, but I'd ask to be excused just this once. Uh, Please, please, please read this temporary protection directive from the EU that we're talking about. Like, just Google it. Temporary protection directive EU. Um, Because I was... I guess you could say naively shocked at how brilliant a mechanism this is and also at the same time naively shocked that through all the crises that have landed on the EU's doorstep it's just been sitting in the drawer collecting dust and now it's actually unbelievable like literally unbelievable to see how refugees are treated on one side of the EU without restriction or vetting with the insurance of human rights and dignity versus the other, which Diego has, you know, aptly described. But now that we understand the why, let's try and get closer to the how. Your own values aside, because, you know, I realize that we will all have our own opinions on how we think our governments should respond in situations like this. But what I'd like to pose is, how did we get to the point where in two weeks, all EU member states could come together and grant Ukrainians this support? And at the same time, How did we get to the point where, for years, EU member states did not come together to grant Syrians, Malians, South Sudanese, and others this same protection? And I think there have already been a few hints in our conversation from Christina and Diego. Those moments when they talk about political will or public opinion, public education and understanding. And this brings us back to a favorite focus of the Hague Diplomacy podcast, and that's public diplomacy. Because political will has a great deal to do with you and me. That has to do with us, the general public, but also civil society, academics, media organizations, maybe even also the governments we work for and also pay taxes to, I guess. So how do we educate them? How do we influence political will? But also, how are they influencing us? Now that I think of it, they might even strategically be doing so. I I guess it's not a coincidence that we're incredibly well-informed about the conflict in Ukraine, while the social psyche in Europe is far more ignorant about conflicts in the Sahel. So to end this episode, let's circle back to diplomacy. Let's see how we can action our own voice to be heard at humanitarian borders and vice versa. Traditionally, that just has to do with states communicating to publics. Uh, but now public diplomacy has expanded. It's, it's also about NGOs such as your own, Diego, speaking to states and perhaps NGOs such as your own maybe doing the work of a state and communicating to people as well and saying, hey, this is actually going on. This is what you need to be aware of. So perhaps a, a question to both of you, to what degree uh, does that element of public diplomacy or advocacy perhaps play a role in finding a solution to this? I think you are, I mean, I think they can play uh, a, a very important role uh, in use, but as you also said, um, public diplomacy of states, and I would say of political parties. Uh, we are in a moment where we, we see an increasing xenophobia and populism, not only in the European Union, but in many other uh, uh, parts of the world. and. It, it seems that we are going to be, uh, I don't know, um, that we are bombarded with migrants and that they are going to invade us when the population of Europe is 447 million. I was looking now. And the number of people trying to reach our borders is less than 3%. It's ridiculous. 
but what 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 appears in the media is like all these little boats uh, come in and people trying to jump, and it seems like there is such a crisis. This is not it's not a crisis. Uh, most of people also stay in the regional borders. Not not they are not coming to our countries, and I think uh, we need to reach particularly politicians. Uh, and that they try and, and influence the discourse because it really has an impact in what the public opinion is thinking, yeah. First of all, as an NGO, of course, we have our discourse, our public discourse through social media, um, statements, of course, um, different reports we do about the different phases we are in the different um, migration processes. That has to be, and, and of course the day-to-day Dialogues with the different layers of the of the administration, for sure. Um, that has to be there, and we do it. But I would also like to mention uh, two others. First of all, um, we are a church-based NGO, um, the Society of Jesus, and we have um, we have to speak directly to our society as a welcoming community. And we try to impact those that surround us to take part in this. This is not something that NGOs have to do. This is something that us as a welcoming community have to take part in. For example, we are very um, active in providing community sponsorship uh, in which refugees who are resettled are received here by a community. And that is not done only by us, but in, in interact with the UNHCR and with the regional and national government. So there's a way of providing a new kind of idea, um, taking into account the community. And then the last one I want to mention is the, the, the person itself, the migrant or asylum seeker who is empowered to be a multiplier when he or she is, is ready, of course, that is very, very, very impactful um, spokesperson to advocate for these rights. And, and I believe um, that is also kind of diplomacy in which we are our parties to provide the tools to empower and then to take a step back. Um, so I, th I think those three layers are very important. I would say as important, and it starts with us as an NGO, of course, in order to advocate for a different kind of public discourse of, um, of, of our leaders and a society as a whole. And something I wanted to also mention, Elaine, is that the Spanish society is a welcoming community. We have, we have, um, we have seen that. And it, it's actually, I wanted to finish with one anecdote. When, when I went to Melilla in this, in this very like, um, difficult days, the, the civil society of Melilla was mobilizing was gathering goods, money to help Ukrainian refugees. And it's like very strange because you had refugees right there beside you that had just arrived. And, and they were really moved by the Ukrainian situation. That's, and that's great. I mean, I don't want to deter them from doing so, but the public discourse takes them that way for, I mean, there's not going to be any Ukrainian refugee arriving from Malia into Malaysia, but they were putting their parts to, to assist Ukrainian refugees and they had 
other refugees right at their, their doorstep, you know? So it's very important to, 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 to provide the, the tools and the public discourse for, for people to mobilize. And Spain and Europe as a whole, I mean, every country has its particularities, has welcoming communities, uh, and we need to show them. So there you have it. I, I don't want to keep you any longer or bombard you with anything more than we already have, but I hope we've been able to learn a little more about the harsh reality that is a humanitarian border and how people like Diego and Christina play a role to bring the state a little closer to those that they're able to help, be it through advocacy, academic endeavor, or diplomacy. And lastly, you know, I, I know it can be a bit depressing sometimes just trying to wrap one's mind around crisis after crisis, but I hope this has maybe brought a little bit of inspiration or at the very least understanding that if you so wish, your view and your voice can have an impact as well. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.